uh, we uh, will be turning over our calendars. I don't know about you, but we have a big wall calendar in the kitchen, and, and it's almost a ceremony. It's not really, but it's from moving from one of these wall calendars, you know, with all of your appointments on it, looks like your life's there, you know, to a new one, which already has some things on it. But that's kind of a, a reminder to us that this is the end of the year and the beginning of a new year. A lot of people do resolutions, you know. It's a, it's a hinge point. I want to talk about hinges today. Let's turn in Isaiah, would you? Chapter 6, we'll read the whole chapter, all 600 verses. No, there's just 13. It's just 13. It's in your, it's in your uh, bulletin. And you follow along there in the 1984 version, my favorite, of the New International Version. Please follow whatever translation you have at hand. Here then, the word of God through and to his servant Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, O oh Lord? And he answered, 
until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But, as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Thus far in God's word, inerrant and sure, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider these momentous words from an occasion that indelibly was inscribed on the mind's eye of Isaiah and of many since through him. We pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit might stir in our hearts and remove the veil that would keep us from seeing. Enable us, O oh God, to see Jesus and be changed for having met in this place and heard him speak. By his spirit, through his word, change us, we pray. And through us, change our world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. History has hinge points. If you study in history, there are things that stand out times and events at which uh, thereafter things seem to flow very differently than they had before. On September 11th, 2001, for those of us who are not very young, <laughs> uh, stands out for us. Our country was attacked. Aircraft slammed into two, the two twin towers and, and then into the Pentagon and one that was meant apparently for the White House uh, was co-opted by uh, its, uh, its uh, passengers and crashed instead into a field in Pennsylvania. Almost 3,000 Americans lost their lives in that day. That was more Americans that were killed, than were killed at Pearl Harbor, to put it in perspective. We're still at war, the war on terror, even if we've claimed victory, it's obviously not the case that War will go on for some time. There are other events that stand out in the history of nations and the history of the church. And there are events that stand out in your life and in mine. Hinge points. Our lives are never the same thereafter. Perhaps it's a tragedy, a loss of a loved one, or a loss of a relationship. Sometimes, perhaps, it's the loss of a career or of our health and limbs. An accident that leaves us paralyzed. A sickness that robs us of our minds. And that could be a very hard time. Not only for those of us who experience it, but for those close by who love them. 
hinge points. Our text speaks of such a hinge point in the prophet Isaiah's life with ramifications, implications really, for our own lives. And in this text, these 13 short but powerful verses, we hear our God speak to us of call, of commission, and of covenant. Of call, of commission, and of covenant. And together, they weave the tapestry of an important truth in Scripture that God calls His people to both faith and missional service. Then, in Isaiah's day, and now. And that precious truth is established through the uh, threefold message of call that God decisively calls his servants, commission that God's call constitutes a summons to mission, and finally to uh, covenant that God's missional call carries his pr promise as well that he will preserve a remnant. And now Let's look at those in turn, shall we? First, with respect to call. God decisively calls his servants. The entire narrative is the, the description of Isaiah's call to service. Now, scholars argue that he had previously been called, and this is a, 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 a reinforcement or a renewal of that call. And that may well be, but the point is, it's call nonetheless, and a powerful one, whether it was the first of his call or uh, the follow-on to one he experienced before in uh, perhaps less dramatic fashion. It's the passage that uh, your speaker was reading late at night after three sleepless nights wrestling with the call of God on his life. And it was this passage that powerfully turned his life from being a surface warfare officer in the United States Navy to being one who was a mere fisherman for Jesus. It's a powerful text. Let's understand it. First, God calls his servants decisively. That's the entire narrative. The historical background of good King Uzziah's long and distinguished reign over half a century that ended sadly. You see, King Uzziah had been a good king, one of the few good kings of the southern kingdom, uh, the Davidic dynasty flowing out of David descendants of David that ruled in the southern kingdom of Judah which included the tribes of Judah and Benjamin after the breakaway of the ten northern tribes following Solomon's reign. And there were never any good kings in the north, not one. The south had some but they were the exception and one of those was Uzziah and as he followed the Lord he loved the land, he cultivated it he had gardens everywhere. He built up towers. He built up the army. He responded to incursions and invasions of, of the enemies of God's people. He subdued the Philistines. He subdued the Ammonites. He subdued the Arabs and the Midianites. His kingdom extended all the way to the boundaries of Egypt itself. He was known as a powerful figure. And he walked with God 
But the story has a tragic turn because there was a hinge in Uzziah's life. And that hinge came when he got too full of himself, if you'll pardon the expression. His forefather Solomon had written in Proverbs, the crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but a man is tested by the praise he receives. Not everyone can take it without being ruined by it. Desire decided that he was king and that wasn't enough. He would also make himself like the kings of the surrounding nations did with their idolatrous temples. He would make himself on a par with the highest of the servants of God, he would make himself, as Caesar would later do, Pontifex Maximus, the high priest. He wasn't of the lineage of Aaron, the Levite. God had said that the priests were to be only Levites out of the lineage of Aaron, Moses' brother. Uzziah was of the line of Judah from which the king was to come. And he was king. God had given him that. He took a censer in his hand, undoubtedly dressed himself in an ephod, the priestly garment as well, but he went into the holy place in the temple. It wasn't enough for him to bring his gifts at the altar like everyone else and bow as an example to the people. He had to go in where only the priests could go, where it was holy because the Shekinah, the dwelling, the glory cloud of the presence of God filled the temple. And he undoubtedly intended, I think, to go into the Holy of Holies. The priests stopped him and were told he raged at them. How dare they? And as he raged, this good king, given to rage in his pride, God smote him with leprosy in his forehead. And the priests rushed to push him out because he was unclean ceremonially. He himself realized what had happened and he was eager to get out of that place himself. And the rest of his reign, he had to live outside of the city in a separate quarter. He couldn't enter the congregation of the Lord, never entered the temple again. Even his rule, he had to share the co-regency with his son Jotham, who handled the palace and the affairs of the kingdom. He was king in name only. A good king. Long reign, over half a century, and it ended sadly. Isaiah says, it was in that year that he died. When the era was over, who knew what was coming next? In that year, he said, I saw the Lord. Now listen to me. Isaiah was not, as far as we know, of the Levitical tribe either, let alone of the descendants of Aaron. Isaiah was not a priest, as far as we know. He couldn't have gone into the holy place anymore than Uzziah could. Let alone the holy of holies where only the high priest was allowed to go and only once a year to sprinkle the blood of the day of atonement. 
of that sacrifice on the, on the mercy seat, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim that covered once a year. Once a year. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the highest place was not the holy place. It was the holy of holies that stood higher. It's a perfect cube. But, that, but the architecture caused it to rise. And God showed himself to Isaiah. I say this because he sees God in a vision. He did not violate the law of God by doing what Isaiah had done. God gave him a vision. Now he sees Yahweh, the Lord, high and lifted up. How can you do that? Hadn't God said to Moses, no man living can see me and live? Later on, Isaiah would, in the northern kingdom, would, uh, as he fled from Jezebel, uh, would go down to Sinai and... and uh, there be hidden in a cleft in the rock, a cave. God said, come out and meet with me. He's going to deal with, uh, with Elijah who'd abandoned his post. He came there to resign. And, and, and God says, go out and face the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. Remember what Elijah finally did. I mean, there's the earthquake, the fire, and the, and the mighty wind shatters the rocks. The Lord wasn't in any of those. And there's a still small voice, we're told, in 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, and uh, the still small voice, and I, I, uh, Elijah goes to the door of the cave after he wraps his cloak around his face. Commentators foolishly, some of them say, oh, he was sulking. No, he wasn't. He knew what, he was in the very place that Moses was covered by the hand of God as his glory passed by. He knew what God had said there. No man living will see my holiness, my face, and live. Here's Isaiah, and he sees the Lord. Do you get it? How'd he do that? Well, it's just a vision. Oh, no. It's more than that. Much more than that. 1 John 1 uh, tells us that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father, he has revealed him. And later on in Matthew's gospel and in John's gospel, this passage from Isaiah chapter 6 is quoted. And John says, Isaiah wrote this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Theologians sometimes speak of what they call, here's a technical term if you want, a, a theological term, theophanies. That is to say a manifestation of God. And what they mean by that usually is a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus Christ. Before, before the stable, before he entered into our humanity joined himself with us, taking our human nature without relinquishing his divine nature, which was from forever into eternity. He took our human nature. That was what Christmas was about. But before that, he was still God. He was always there. And he could and did take bodily form and manifested himself. I can name occasion after occasion. Time doesn't permit. The point is, whom? 
Did Isaiah see? He saw Yahweh. But who? Yahweh? Yes, the Son. The Son of God. You see, the Son is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. There's one God. How does that work? I don't know. But the Bible teaches it. If I did know, I'd have to be God. It's one of the proofs, by the way, of the Trinity. No one could even imagine that doctrine. Because there's nothing like it. There's no analogy. That's called holiness. Holy, holy, holy. No one like him is God. That was what Isaiah saw and he immediately felt his sinfulness. If we really have an encounter with the living God, we will never fail to be driven to our knees because we'll see who he is and know what we are by comparison. And not one of us is without sin. All have sinned. Come short of the glory of God. You recognize you're a sinner? Join the company. There's no one here who is not, according to the word of God. But you see, the confession and acknowledgement in the presence of God that he's holy and we're not, and we're lost apart from him, brings God to do something through his angel who takes with tongs in his hand a live coal. Get that? A live coal from the altar. And touches it to his lips. That part of his body where he's most aware of his sinfulness. James in the New Testament writes in his epistle that no one can tame the tongue. Out things come. You can't control it. The real you sooner or later is going to come out by something you say. <laughs> There are times I wish that weren't true, and it is. Catches me too. And it does you if you're honest. Jesus says it's not what goes into a man that makes you unclean. It's what comes out. Out of your heart come the things that you say. I might add do. But especially the lips. And it touches, the coal touches his lip. Where did that coal come from? The altar. What about the altar? The altar, God had said, that's the altar there are two altars. One's for the incense, but the other one is outside. It's in the courtyard. It's the brazen altar, and the, the coals there, the fire there, God said, was never, ever, ever to go out because the holiness of God is always all-consuming of sin. And the coal from that is what would have been a part of what burned, consumed the offering, the substitute. The atoning Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came and was called that by John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And so here's this coal. It represents the atonement of God's provision. And it touches his lips. And God, through his angel, says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What a relief. Have you felt the relief of knowing God smiles on you? He knows everything you've done. Not some Santa. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. Good for goodness sake. No, 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 no. 
this is not a jolly old man. I've been asked, I had, was in, uh, at a tower in, in Seoul some time back and with a, a Korean colleague and some Japanese tourists, uh, young ladies, teenagers came along and asked him to take a picture of them with, with me. I thought, why? And then they asked him, whispered, is, is he Santa? <laughs> ho, 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 the beard, the belly, the laugh. I don't know, but listen, Santa has nothing compared to the God who sees all. He is called Lacharoim, the living one who sees me by Hagar, lost in the wilderness. Have you known the relief it is to acknowledge? Yes, you are a sinner. Not to run from those thoughts, oh, when I did that, I was so embarrassed, I've got to put that out of my mind, flush it. No, you can't do that. Got to do something with it. What are you going to do with it? I don't know what you can do with it except one thing. The one thing I know you can do with it that works is what God says you can do with it. What is that? Take it to him. Tell him. You know what he says? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When that happens, it's a hinge point in our lives. And that's not a one-time event. It's a one-time event for salvation. But we keep coming back each day to the Lord, keep short accounts with him as we walk with him. And he promises us that from that time forward, he'll never leave us or forsake us. A friend is made for adversity, wrote Solomon. But there's a, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus, our Savior, in the depths and deepest dark wells of our experiences. God's cleansing, then, is accompanied by his call to service. Who shall I send? And who will go for us? See, God doesn't just save you so he can put you on a shelf and dust you off now and again and say, nice trophy, eh? <laughs> and just let you alone from then. No, 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 no. He calls you to service. We first are called to worship, but with that worship comes service, and our service is a part of the whole life worship that we render unto God. Whom shall I go and who? Uh, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Isaiah says, in Inani, behold me. That's literally what it is. Here I am. Send me. You see, the first mark of a changed heart, a truly repentant person, is that they are now ready to acknowledge the lordship of their saving God and say, use me. I love you and I'm yours. And that's what Isaiah did. But you notice that that call, in turn, brought a commission. And so God's call constitutes a summons to missions. Go, says God. The response to God's missional message won't always be one of popular acceptance. They're going to have calloused ears. They're going to, the more you speak, the more it seems that they are insensitized to your message. You know, that's true. We have to take care how we listen to the word of God. Take heed. 
Because Jesus would later say, as he talked about that passage, he would say, those who have will be given more. And those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. The word of God never leaves people the way it finds us. We are always either hardened as Pharaoh was, or we are brought to increased uh, repentance, faith, and new obedience, commitment to the Lord our God, one or the other. It's not like a fairy tale. It's not like a novel. It's not like a chemistry book. You can't just read it and put it back on the shelf. It doesn't work that way. I remember missionary midwives, husband and wife, they were both midwives, who worked in a country I will not name, in the Trucial States in, uh, along the per Persian Gulf or Arab Arabian Gulf, as uh, many of the Arabs would prefer to call it anyway, the Gulf. And uh, um, they labored there for 17 years. And they never saw a single public profession of faith, not one, 17 years. I asked them, do you have any regrets? You've wasted your life in the eyes of the world. Have any regrets? And they said, no, none. We're convinced God called us there to proclaim the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we believe that he honored his name from that. And we don't know what may yet come from that. That's wrong in my mind. I thought, but wasn't it a waste of two people's lives? They were so gifted, so capable. And then as I did some more reading later, uh, before I went to seminary, reading some of history, and, and I read about, my name is Larson, I'm in you can guess, I, I, I'm descended from uh, <clears throat> some highly uh, religious and very sanctimonious Vikings. No, they were not at all uh, Christian or, or holy or pious or anything. In fact, they went about, they loved nothing better than to kill people who were people of peace and love and joy. They nearly destroyed Christianity in Europe. What the Muslims hadn't done, uh, they just about did. Christians went to them. First Celtic Christians and then their converts among the Saxons uh, went to them and others went and they kept going for two centuries. Vikings were a resistant people. I could tell you more about their worldview but we don't have time. It's not a pretty picture. And at the end of two centuries in a period of approximately one generation one generation. There swept a people movement. The, the Spirit of God so moved mightily among all the Scandinavian lands that virtually all of Vikingdom was converted to Christianity in a generation. Oh, it was messy during and after. But that's what happened, and that was a result. 
So were all the missionaries who went for those 200 years before then wasted? Oh no, oh no. The soil was hard, but they scratched it and broke it. It was infertile, so they added that which would make things grow. It had no concept of the gospel, so they tenderly planted and cultivated the seed. And in God's time, there was a harvest. And since the time of the Reformation, there has, I'm glad I didn't know this until after I was ordained, there has been a minister of the gospel in my family line, unbroken every generation since the Protestant Reformation reached Norway. I didn't know that when I became a pastor. I'm glad I didn't. Because I don't think that's a reason you go and do something. But it shows something. That would never have happened. If people hadn't gone and loved my ancestors who killed them for their trouble. But God calls us to lay down our lives. It may not mean going to some place will be slaughtered. It may be laying down our lives by serving those in our neighborhood. In this church fellowship. Those who have needs and are hurting. Maybe other ways in which we say, Lord, here I am. I am crucified with Christ. My life is now his. So that's a part of it too. It is finished. And now it's being applied. Well, finally, our last point and, and we're done. The call and the commission lead us to covenant. God's missional call carries his promise to preserve a remnant. Now those verses just before the end, up until the very last verse, last half of the verse, uh, those verses speak of judgment. What were they all about? Well, God had said through Moses... I'm giving the people the promised land. They're about to go in without you, Moses. Because you also lost your temper in a moment of pride. And I'm holy and I have to show the people, demonstrate that I don't just turn a blind eye at that. So you can't go in with them. I'll let you see it. But you'll be buried outside of that. But through Moses, he said, to the people of God, if you go in and walk with me, I'll give you this promised land, a good land flowing with milk and honey. It'll always be yours if you walk with me. If you turn your backs on me, I will turn my back on you. I will bring uh, those incursions from, from outside that will raid uh, uh, your, your people, your villages, and carry them off captive. I'll, I'll bring famine and drought. I'll, I'll just discipline you and if you still won't listen if you're hardened after that I'll carry you away in captivity into exile and even the few that are left will be destroyed and ground down and then God said through Moses but even then I have the last word because I have promised that I will bring about through Abraham's seed the promise God gave to Adam and Eve the moment after they fell, as it were, in Eden. 
that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That is to say that God would preserve a remnant and that got down to a single one in Jesus Christ. And in him, it begins to broaden out. Chapter 11 of the book of Romans, Paul says, the judgment for a season on on ethnic Israel, in part, blindness in part, that is some some, uh, uh, of those who are uh, of Abrahamic uh, biological descent do believe then and now. But others in part, blindness is on them and until all the fullness of the nations of the Gentiles will be gathered and the church is complete. All God's elect are enfolded. And then, and this will um, betray my eschatology and people disagree on, on the doctrine of the last things, but then, then it says... Uh, what if, if judgment on Israel brings blessing to the nations? What will their restoration be but life from the dead? And then in verse 26 of Romans 11, Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. Do I know exactly what that means? No. Do, am I inferring that the nation state of Israel today is the Israel of prophecy? I, I don't know that. But I do know God's doing something. And he's promised in history that all his chosen ones from all nations, including Israel, through which the promises come, will one day be gathered at the throne of God. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 tells us as John sees this on the island of Patmos, uh, the apostle John looks up and sees heaven open. And he sees the throne of God and a great host that no one can number from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. And they're engaged in one activity. And that activity is what we're here for. Worshiping the king. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. How is it with you today? Jesus beckons you. If you haven't made your commitment to him, acknowledged in repentance that you need his forgiveness, that only he can give you, you can't can't come to him and say, well, I've got this little part I can offer. If you'll do the rest, he's got to do it all or none. Come to him as a beggar with open hands. If you haven't done that, you need to, but you can't do that unless you also acknowledge he's Lord. That means you can't hold back something and say, you're Lord of everything, but I want this part of my life. I want this habit. I want these cronies and the activities that go with them. I want to handle this part of my estate without worrying about what you say. We can't do that. Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And if you are, His child this morning, be assured, his purpose for you is good. It may lead through a valley. Weeping may endure for a night, and it may be a long night. Some of us know that. But joy, he promises, comes in the morning. Let's pray.